Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you noticed a little bit of extra creaking and pain in your joints, maybe going up and down the stairs, or maybe sometimes when you're trying to do some of those favorite sports that you used to enjoy so much? Well, today we are going to be talking about what the reason is that people get joint replacements. And I'm delighted to have one of my colleagues, Dr. Joseph Ricatapine from Hawaii Pacific Health. He practices at Polymomy and Straub Medical Centers. And he is going to walk us through the idea of who needs a joint replacement, how are they done these days, and what are the new technological advances in what we've learned to do, particularly for helping people with their joints? So thank you for joining me today on The Body Show. Thanks for having me. Now, you know, I hear a lot of folks, I just saw some folks in the clinic today that talk about, you know, bad arthritis and it's bothering them. They have trouble going up and down the stairs. Sometimes it causes them a little bit of pain. But there has to be a certain point where if somebody really has some troubles, joint replacement is not the first thing that we think about, but sometimes it gets severe enough that that's where people are headed. What are some of the, I guess criteria might not be the best word, but what are some of the standard reasons why someone might need to consider a joint replacement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, big, the, the biggest thing with um with joint replacement is that you, you have a condition, usually it's arthritis, but there are some other conditions you can have that, that would lead to it. But usually arthritis that is just bad enough that it, you've tried everything, you've tried what we call conservative management, you know, medications, therapy, um, some sometimes injections, and you're just at the point where it's interfering with your daily existence, you know, just, just simple things. Um, going up and down the stairs, like you said, a lot of people... It's um, trying to sleep at night, um, and it's just trying to do, you know, what we call activities of daily living. You know, we're not, we're not expecting to try to make you, you know, a, a pro tennis player again, but, um, you know, you can certainly try to play tennis. We can, you know, certainly try to get you back to some higher level of activity, but really it's those people who are trying to do, you know, just living their life and, and not have to think about their, their knee or their hip, you know, as a constant reminder that this arthritis is, is just getting in the way of, of functioning. And those are the most common joints that people replace, right? Knee replacement, hip replacement. We don't hear a lot about, although I think they do do ankle replacements, we don't hear a lot about other joints having replacements done as often. Those are the main ones, knees and hips? Yeah, th those are the most common. I mean, there's certainly shoulder replacements, there's even elbow replacements, and yeah, like you mentioned, there are, there are ankle replacements as well. Um, they are, there's Definitely um, some different criteria for those, um, but, you know, similar in the way we do hips and knees. Um, but, yeah, the most common are hips and knees, and um, there's quite a few done every year in the United States now and internationally. Now, when you do a surgery like this, if somebody has gotten to the point where they can't do their regular activities and they decide, okay, it's time to do it, if someone has arthritis, I would often think, particularly for like knees, for example, would it be predominantly that they might have it in one knee as opposed to the other? Or is it common that if you have a little bit of arthritis, you'll probably have it in both knees? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is very common um, to have it in, in both knees or both hips. Um, but, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, we're doing these more as a single procedure. There, people are coming in, you know, with varying degrees in one versus the other. They're not always, you know, equally severe. 
Um, and more often than not, we're doing one side, you know, at a time and then, you know, seeing how they do. And eventually, um, if the other other side becomes more problematic, uh, they've been through it before and they kind of know what to expect. I know for a while some people were doing simultaneous bilateral knee replacements or bilateral hip replacements. Is that something only certain people could do? Are there certain candidates that are better for that than others? Yeah, I, I mean, the research does show that, you know, it is definitely something you want to want to do with people who are a little more or a little healthier in terms of their overall comorbidities, you know, the things like, you know, people with, with bad cardiac problems or, you know, some advanced um, uh, diabetes and, and things like that, what we call risk factors that could potentially lead to complications. We, we try to be a little more selective in those patients, but, you know, it, it is a safe procedure to do both sides and it's, it is, it is very common. Um, in my own practice, I, I try to, you know, be realistic with people. I think it, it takes a, it, it is a challenging to recover from that. So I think, you know, the, the preoperative uh, mobility, I, I, I focus a lot on that. You know, if someone is, is really um, having a difficult time and, you know, on a walker and you know, just not very mobile, trying to do both at the same time can sometimes be, be challenging. But um, overall, it is, it is well tolerated and, um, and if somebody is uh, very determined to do that, you know, it's, it can be an option. So let's say somebody's decided, okay, my knees are bad enough. I'm going to do a knee replacement. They may schedule this surgery in a few months or so. What could they do now that could help them to have a better surgical recovery? You know, you mentioned a walker, and I think to myself, well, better have good, strong biceps because you're going to need those so that you can get up and support your body. And, you know, what are some of the other pre-surgery types of ways that someone could optimize their condition so they'd have an easier recovery? Yeah. So, you know, generally speaking, um, we don't, we don't make anyone do anything uh, like in terms of what we call a prehab or, or, um, you know, kind of working up to getting the, uh, the joint replacement. But yeah, like, you know, if you can get into a little bit of a routine of what we call low impact exercises, um, stretching and, and doing kind of some of the, the routine that we will do after the surgery and getting used to that, that can be helpful. Certainly optimizing the diet. Um, you know, if, if, you, if um, someone is, you know, diabetic or they have, um, you know, issues with their diet, trying to eat a little healthier, kind of optimize their body for healing, um, that can be, be helpful as well. Those are generally the things we focus on beforehand. But we um, oftentimes we have people come in, you know, they're already at that point where they are, they're just, they've, they've tried everything, they've exhausted everything, and it's, it's kind of time to go the surgery, so we're not going to, you know, delay things to, um, to, to wait for them to be, uh, you know, prehabbed or whatever you'd like to call it. Um, you know, there is some optimization for sure if their diabetes is out of control or they have other medical conditions that need to be, quote, optimized. Um, you know, we, we would do that first, but generally speaking, we, we will, you know, move forward with the surgery. Now, on what average age do people start getting joint replacements? I mean, it's not something you might see somebody do in their 20s or 30s unless there's some extreme circumstance. But what's the average age for people getting joint replacements these days? Oh, well, it's actually becoming younger and younger. I, I think um, the generally it's around 60, 65. Um, but, you know, it is that that number is kind of getting getting lower over the years now. Um and uh, there is pretty wide range. Uh, I mean, I, I routinely see people, you know, in their 40s and 50s who have really, really horrible um, condition in either their hip or their, their knees. And, you know, a lot of times that's trauma-related or some, you know, 
not just your your bread and butter um, arthritis, but you know, you try to be more selective in the very younger uh, crowd. You try to really, you know, put it off as long as possible. Um, and, you know, now as we have an aging population, we do have a fair amount of people who are, you know, in their 80s, 90s and, you know, uh, up there in age, and, and they tolerate it, it very well. I mean, I, I, I like to tell people that this, you know, a bad knee or a bad hip shouldn't be the thing that, um, you know, you, you basically can't can't move around or do anything for the, the remainder of your life. You should be able to enjoy your, you know, your years and, and put it behind you. So um, we, we try to, you know, kind of take all ages and we, we look at what, um, what the specific conditions are when they come in. So, you know, there is no age where it's too late, but there may be some medical conditions that might make it more complicated. But don't let age be a factor if you're thinking about it, whether it be on either ends of the extreme, young or old, it might be something you need. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, if you have like a, for example, like a really extreme, you know, a younger person who, you know, maybe got a horrible accident and they have a terrible knee and, you know, they're, they're practically wheelchair bound from that knee, you know, I mean, you have to think about that, you know, and say, okay, you know, is this, is this going to dramatically improve their life? And, you know, is it worth the trade off of possible more surgery in the future as they wear out that knee? Um, you know, and conversely, for somebody who's, you know, uh, a lot older, um, if they have, uh, you know, a really bad hip or really bad knee, and that's um, same thing, it's, it's, it's taking away their ability to ambulate and their ability to take care of themselves, you know, is they, they may be at an increased risk, they may have more cardiac factors and other things that, that are going to make the surgery slightly more risky, but, um, you know, if it's worth it to them to be able to keep their, you know, ambulatory status whole and to, to be able to enjoy their life, you know, then, then that is something you have to think about and, you know, try to try to work with the patient to, uh, to, to make it happen if, if that's what they want. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Joe Vercatapine from Hawaii Pacific Health about how long is surgery and how long does it take to recover and is it different based on which joint? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I'm discussing things with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Joseph Rakatapin, Hawaii Pacific Health, practicing at Polymomy and Straub Medical Centers, and we're talking about joint replacement. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about the age range that we're seeing joint replacements occur, and it could be young folks, it could be older folks. If you have a joint that's dramatically impacting your quality of life, there may be some reason to take a look and consider getting an opinion from an orthopedic surgeon. Now, I'm curious, Dr. Vercatapine, you do these surgeries all day. How long does an average joint replacement take? Well, the surgery itself is is pretty efficient. So it doesn't take a, a tremendous amount of time if it's relatively straightforward. Um, you know, hip replacement generally uh, takes about an hour to an hour and a half or so. Um, the same thing with the knee replacement. Knees can be a little bit longer because it's a, a little more involved uh, closure. Um, but um, for the most part, it's a very efficient surgery. It's very, um, um, you know, standardized. We do this a lot. So we have the, the system down, I think, uh, is to as pretty much as efficient as it can be. 
And, um, you know, but the overall time under anesthesia is probably about two hours because you've got to set up a little and then, you know, uh, have the patient come um, out of the operating room. Um, but overall, yeah, not, not a very long surgery. And nowadays, sometimes people are having these surgeries done and going home the same day. Yeah, that's actually becoming much more of the trend. And I think um, COVID, uh, the whole COVID pandemic kind of really, um, you know, kind of pushed the envelope a, li- a little bit with that as patients, uh, I think, were, you know, maybe not as excited to be in the hospital setting uh, to have these surgeries. So um, we have a lot of research now showing that it's it's a very safe procedure to be doing as an outpatient um, and, and to be doing as an, at the ambulatory surgery center where basically you come in. In the morning, um, you have the surgery, you do a little rehab, um, and then you, you, you go home the same day. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's very successful, and we are um, definitely seeing, I, I think, some better outcomes with that than, than, than traditionally. Well, and you're right. I think uh, COVID accelerated that change because hospitals were not the place where people wanted to be if they could avoid it. But we still had a lot of folks who needed to have surgery performed and needed to do it to improve their quality of life. So I did see a big trend to move towards outpatient surgery. And my first thought is, oh, I don't know how that could happen. But then you're right. When you look at the studies, we're really seeing equivalent, if not even better outcomes for folks in their own environment. You know, if you don't live in a house with 30 stairs to get in, you're actually going to do pretty well and you might be in your own bed that evening, which has, there's a lot to be said for being around your own home environment. Certainly some definite advantages. Yeah. And, you know, and and luckily there's just such a a huge amount of data on this now. There's quite a few surgeons um, around the the country and, and around the world who are you know, doing your research on this and, and showing and demonstrating the data and, and what we see is, you know, patients, um, the, the biggest, you know, factor on whether or not somebody can, can do this as an outpatient, typically it has to do more with their home support system more than, you know, say kind of the, their overall health. Um, as long as their health conditions are optimized and there's nothing, you know, kind of out of control, diabetes or heart disease and those kinds of things, hypertension. If all of that is optimized and they have a good support network at home where just basically someone can check on them, help them with food, um, you know, just kind of look after them a little bit. They don't have to be there 24-7, um, but just, you know, look in to see how they're doing. Uh, generally, they do, they do very, very well. And all of the things that we um, typically would do in the hospital, whether it's pain management with medications um, and, and all that, it, it's typically very easily managed at home. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's becoming more of, I think, the standard uh, than, it, than it was, uh, you know, before. Now, I'm curious, how long does recovery take? So if you had your surgery for someone who maybe you did surgery for today and, you know, maybe we'll take hip and then knee sort of separately. If they had a surgery done and they went home today, at what point do you think they'll be a little bit more mobile, able to get up and get around on their own? And maybe not even need a walker. Does that take about two or three, two or three weeks, two or three months? What's the time scale? Yeah, so everybody's a little bit different. I think you know people who are a little more higher functioning uh, prior to surgery. Um, you know, they're not on a walker uh, prior to surgery. They'll they'll get off of it quicker. Um, you know, typically knees take longer than hips. Um, hips, uh, generally speaking, I, I kind of. I always I like to make the statement that, like, you know, by three months, I expect you to be back to whatever job you're doing. And, um, you know, it's not going to be perfect. You're still going to be about, you know, 75, 80 percent. You still have some recovery to go, but you'll be able to tolerate most things. 
it's that kind of in between. You know, the first week or two, I tell everyone, just take it easy. It's, this is not a race. It's just, you know, let, let your body heal, um, go slow. But you should be able to, to um, bathe yourself. You should be able to use the bathroom yourself. You should be able to feed yourself and get up and move around and do some basic exercises those first uh, few weeks. And then as you move into kind of the, the you know, several weeks after the surgery, four to six weeks later, things are generally um, getting easier. They're still not 100%. Again, it's, it's not easy to recover from this, especially a knee takes a little longer. But um, as you get out uh, about four to six weeks, they're getting easier. And by three months, you know, we're kind of releasing you to do what we call full activity at that point, where if you want to, you know, do some rigorous exercise and be getting back to, um, you know, kind of higher level uh, activity, we expect you should be able to do that. You know, it's not going to be perfect, but, but you should be getting there. So what are some of the... Uh, precautions that somebody needs to take, you know, immediately after surgery, they want to get up and get around, you said. So we don't want them Mm -hmm. to sit down all day, even though it might feel more comfortable. We got to be careful with blood clots. We've got to make sure there's no infection. So there are a couple of things that, you know, people need to keep in mind. What are those? Yeah. So, you know, we, I think in the past, you know, especially with like knees, um, we would you know, try to encourage people to be moving and bending the knee as much as possible and, you know, really kind of really stressing the PT. And and in my own experience and, you know, kind of more as more research has come out, I think it's it's just important to get up and move, do some basic exercises. We get them going on therapy, but we want to let the tissue heal. We want to let the tissue rest. Um, I don't want people, you know, trying to you know, force their knee bending as far as they can because, I, you know, I would like to let the wound heal and not, um, you know, stir up too much inflammation. Um, you know, hips, the way we're doing hips now, um, generally we don't have uh, what we call hip precautions where you have to worry about the hip dislocating. We're doing a, what's called an anterior approach hip replacement where there's less, um, less chance that you're going to have it uh, dislocate by putting in the body in certain positions. So I just tell people to move within comfort. Don't, um, don't push it one way or the other. Just Make sure you're getting up, doing your exercises twice a day, getting the uh, the blood moving. Like you said, we want to avoid blood clots. Um, generally, that that's avoided both with you know getting up and moving, and then um, pharmacologically with um, something sometimes as simple as aspirin. Um, and then um, you know overall, just you know going at a pace where you're you're comfortable, but um, you're not uh, you know too comfortable. You do have to get up and move and, and do the therapy. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Joe Vercatapine from Polymomy and Straub Medical Centers. And we're going to talk a little bit about how long do the joints last and are there new techniques that we're learning that are making this replacement last longer than ever. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I have orthopedic surgeon extraordinaire Dr. Joe Vercatopin on the, on the line here. He's from Hawaii Pacific Health, practicing at Polymomi and Straub Medical Centers, and we've been talking about joint replacements, and we've talked so far about how do you know you need one, who are the best candidates, and and what kinds of expectation you can have for recovery. Let's talk about the actual replacement. So, you know, I always think to myself, well, you've got metal in your body now. Do you set off metal detectors? And, you know, what kind of replacements are we using? And is there sort of a standard one, or is it personalized to the individual? Yeah, um, the, the parts now are, are pretty standard. They've evolved over time. Um, most of the parts now are made with uh, titanium. Um, it's, a, it's a metal. Um, we have, there's a there's a plastic that's both in knee and hip replacements. Um, it's a specialized kind of plastic. Um, and then we're using more um, ceramics these days. So we use uh, ceramic um, in the hip replacements, and some of the uh, knee replacements have what we call a ceramicized coating over them. Um, so the, these all of these are um, basically to try to make the parts last as long as possible, um, decrease what we call wear. You know, over time, these parts can um, they can fail in a number of ways, um, but typically in the past, um, the, the two most common ways are that the, the plastic wears down over time, kind of like the treads on the tire of your car. You know, the, oh, we put a lot of miles on them over time, they, they wear, and uh, that can cause issues as well as... Um, the parts themselves can actually loosen up. Um, they can become kind of debonded from the bone. Uh, and, and, you know, those are typical ways that they, they wear out. But as we're getting better and better with these parts and the, the materials that we're using, um, they're, they, they are lasting longer and should, you know, according to the, at least the laboratory data, um, you know, kind of outlive the, the parts we used to use, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, I know. Boy, even when I, sadly enough, finished medical school and started training uh, over two decades ago, you know, I would hear about, well, they last about 10 years or so, so you don't want to do a replacement too soon, or they might have to have a repeat surgery, but that's not necessarily the case these days. They're lasting a lot longer. We've really moved forward technologically. Yeah, the the, the metals and the and the ceramics and, and plastic, they they. they... There's been a lot of refinement soon without getting too you know, technical. Um, just things that have, have, you know, worked in the laboratory setting to, to make them last longer. And I think, um, you know, we should see them, you know, clinically uh, follow suit. You know, it's just very difficult. There are so many things that can happen to a person in a person's life, you know, whether they, you know, they can fall on the joint, they can have um, all kinds of things that, that can potentially interfere with, you know, how long it lasts. But, you know, for the most part, um, I think when people are, you know, at the typical ages where they uh, are going to do this, you know, generally in their 60s and above, we don't typically, or at least in my practice, I don't worry too much about that anymore because I think the quality of life issue is really the, the important part of it. You know, it's, it's we can, uh, one of my mentors used to say, you know, like, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow and nobody knows what's going to happen in three years, five years, 10 years. So, you know, you, typically if you have this kind of problem and it's really making your life very challenging, why would you want to, you know, wait till some ideal time? You know, yeah, that's, that may not be true when somebody's in their, you know, 30s or 40s, but you know, certainly in the typical ages we see joint replacements. I, I think it's, it's less of a concern these days. 
Now, let's talk about robotics, because I think part of what has advanced is not just the metal that we use, but also the technique. And you've used, you do robotic surgery. And so how does that help the surgical procedure? And, and why is it an advancement? Yeah, so typically, you know, right now we're, we're using robotics primarily in knees, but there are some applications in the hip. Um, and really what it is, is uh, it, it's for optimizing what we call um, implant placement. And you know, when you put these parts in there, there are some theoretical, ideal um, ways that you put them in and place them on the bone. And, um, you know, the traditional way of doing that has involved a little bit, um, you know, possibly less accuracy than what we would want. So the robot has, has kind of, I think, changed that a bit in that it's it's giving us now a level of, of, of detail and of accuracy and precision where we can really kind of fine-tune where we want to put the, the implants. And there's a lot of technical factors to why you would want to put them in certain orientations on the bone and, and in certain ways, but what that's doing is it's, it's removing um, – what we could call error in in the in the traditional um, uh, um, the traditional tools to put them in. So it's it, it's a lot of it is theoretical, um, but there have been uh, studies that, that demonstrate that there's less what we call outliers, uh, which you know are are you know implants that maybe aren't in what we would call the ideal position. So if in large groups of patients, when the robots being used we see that there's less chance that um, the implants are going to be in not in the targeted position. And so I think that's really the, the biggest advantage. And theoretically what that means is if you're getting more patients having the implants in the best position possible, then that's likely to be, you know, less problems down the road with the implants, you know, loosening or becoming problematic um, in a shorter period of time than they would otherwise if they're in a better position. So that's a bit technical, but it's kind of the, the main thrust of it. Well, it sounds like it really helps with the precision. You can put it exactly where you want to, and you can also have that additional guidance with advanced technology. I mean, it just, it makes sense to me that that could allow for a more precise implant positioning, but then also that would have some implications for people when they use their joint. Do, do you think it helps with improved recovery? I know with other types of robotic surgeries, some of the advantages in some of the gynecologic and urologic surgeries are that, you know, you actually have smaller incisions, recover faster. Does that have much of an impact when we're talking about robotics with orthopedics or not really? Well, I... It's a little more theoretical right now. Like we don't, it doesn't traditionally change the like the incision size or, or kind of the soft tissue. Um, this section is what we call it, but it, it's more theoretically. Yes, it does improve the the recovery or the early recovery if those implants are you know very well balanced. Is the term we use for knees where the knee feels right? Like there's a certain feel to how the knee, you know, how tight the knee is, how loose the knee is, how stable the knee is, if it improves that kind of feel to the knee, um, for patients, a lot of times that does equate to the knee, you know, functioning a little better in that early recovery period. And yeah, theoretically, it should be better. You know, that, that has to be borne out a little more in the studies, I think. But I think with time, as these robots become much more advanced, and especially as they integrate, you know, AI, you know, um, into this, uh, into the algorithms and, and the way that the robots work, I think it's really... It is going to revolutionize um, orthopedics, and, it, and like it has in some of the other fields, and 
I think it really is the future. Speaking of the future, we have just a short couple of uh, a couple of seconds left. Where do you see joint replacement going in the next five years? I look at where oh, it's come from the last five, ten years. It's been amazing. We've started doing the outpatient. We're using robotics. What's what's the next step? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a question that I could talk to you about for hours. But <laughs> so but, of course you know, I throw it in and say like you got ten seconds. What do you think? Yeah, yeah but, but basically I, I just think the technology is just going to get better and better, and we're going to see um, we're going to see things like we're already seeing smart implants, implants that are giving us you know feedback on on how they're actually behaving in the body, um, and then at some point maybe we'll get to biological implants. There, there's talk of that. We're not there yet, but. Um, there's and there's all kinds of things in the pipeline in terms of joint restoration and you know you hear things um, like we talk about stem cell and all that kind of stuff that's very very early in in development right now it's not advanced enough yet but there might be a point where you know these uh, implants are more your own. Wow. All right. We could talk for hours about that, and hopefully shortly we will. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. That's Dr. Joseph Ricatapine, Hawaii Pacific Health Polymomy and Straub Medical Centers. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Woo!